Um, I've just realized I'm going to have to stand still this morning, so let's, uh, that'll be a good thing for you. <laughs> oh, please open up your Bibles to Galatians uh, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. It's really wonderful to, to gather together and read God's word together. And um, I'm going to read these few verses. But as I read, I want us to remember these are the very words of God to us. This is God's word to us. And that is an amazing thing, an amazing privilege to have the freedom, safety, and security to read God's word today. So let's read Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. This is God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's God's word to us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that through your word, you would speak to us, Lord, this morning. We need to hear from you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that. Speak to our hearts. Speak to us where we're at. Speak to our children at this time, we pray. Lord, as we all hear your word together, I pray that we'd be blessed. In your precious and wonderful name, amen. There's one man that these verses center around. There's one character that these verses center around. And the man that these verses center around, he is a complicated man. Not only complicated in his character and in his actions, but he is also complicated with the amount of names that he has in the scripture. So often when people are reading about this man in the scripture, they're wondering, well, who is he? Because the realities are in the scripture, this man, he has four names, four names. And that's part of what makes him a complicated man. The first name that he has is the name Simeon. It's a name that I like quite a lot, Simeon. It is a typical Hebrew name that you would give to a young child that is born. God hears. It is his Hebrew name, Simeon. Yet he was living in a Greek culture. So, so I don't know if this happens to you, but maybe you might have a, a different type of name. Our children, they have a different type of name. And so what happens when you have a different type of name in a culture that, let's be fair, is terrible at pronouncing any foreign name, what we do often is we shorten the name or change the name slightly so that people can say it. So Simeon back in the day, that was his Hebrew name, but Simon was his Greek name. 
So if you were in the streets and you called out Simeon, he would turn around. And if you were in the streets and you would call Simon, he would also turn around. But there is a third name that he has. And the third name that he has is not so much a name, but actually a title. And I would expect that this name that he has is probably the most precious name of all. It is the name that we see in these verses. In verse 11, Cephas. And in verse 14, Cephas. That's his third name or title. And why would that be the most precious title to him? I believe it is the most precious title to him because it was the title that was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus gives you a name, you would want to forget about all your other names. This has been given to me by the Messiah. And so what happened was Simon, Simeon, his brother Andrew led him to Jesus and here's what we find. Here's what happens. Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, this is in John 1, and said to Simon, we have found the Messiah, who is the Christ. He brought him, he brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at Simon, who's Simeon. Simeon, Simon, looked at him and said to him, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. You know what? I'm going to change your name. Who does that? Jesus can do that. You know what? I'm going to give you a new name, Cephas. And then in brackets in the Gospel of John, John the writer says, which means Peter. That's his fourth name. So if you were in the, in the street and you were calling out his name and you would say Simeon, he would turn around. If you would say Simon, he would turn around. If you would say Cephas, he would turn around. If you would say Peter, he would turn around. Cephas is the Aramaic name. Petros is the Greek name. So now he's got all sorts of names. What does he put on his passport? Who knows? Who knows? But I would suspect that his favorite name was Cephas, which means rock. Rock. The Lord had a job for Simon, Peter, Simeon. You are going to be a rock. And that interests me when Paul is writing here. Because in chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, he uses the name Peter twice. But in these verses, he uses the name Cephas twice. And so it makes me wonder, why would you, why would you change that around? If they both mean the same thing, if they both mean rock, why would you use this name Cephas? It is a guess of mine, but here's my guess. Paul is seeking to correct Peter. And in order to correct Peter, he brings Peter back to the name of who he was called by Jesus. Peter, you're the rock. Peter, you should know better. Peter, this is not who you are. And so he's calling him back. To live a life that is in step with the gospel because he is slightly turning away from the gospel. You see, this Peter, he is a very, very complicated man. Not only in all his names, but also in all his actions in the scripture. When you see Peter, you see all sorts of different pictures of Peter. And what we have in these verses is another picture of Peter. 
Sometimes when you look at Peter, you look at Peter and you say, Peter, he's the rock. That's what he looks like. He looks like a man who is standing firm in his faith and he is an absolute solid rock. So when you think of Peter, you think of Peter the rock. Or when you think of Peter, you think of Peter the preacher. That's who I think of when I think of Peter. Because in Acts chapter 2, there's this amazing sermon where Peter preaches and over 3,000 trust in the Lord that day. And at the end of Peter's sermon, it says that all the people were cut to the heart and they asked the question, what should we do now? And Peter said this, repent, believe, and be baptized. And so in my English class in secondary school, we were asked, right? This is why I love Peter the preacher. We were asked, you know, find a speech. And I want you to take that speech and I want you to read it. Find the speech. I picked Acts chapter 2. I was just a Christian. I picked Acts chapter 2. I stood up in front of my class and I was able to say these words of Peter. And you know what happened after I read Acts chapter 2 to the class? It was silence because his sermon was so fantastic. Peter the preacher. And when you think of Peter, you might also think of Peter the believer, the one who stands by his convictions. Because Jesus, in, in John chapter 6, and Jesus was telling them all when they were all kind of running after him for bread and, and saying, you know, he was saying, they were like, give us some bread. And Jesus is like, no, no, I am the bread of life, which really would have disappointed them, right? They're running after bread. He's like, I am the bread of life. And then it says there was those disciples who were with him at the time, found his teaching difficult. And Jesus turned to the 12 and he said to them in John chapter 6, he said to the 12, after many disciples ran away after his teaching, Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter steps up and Peter speaks. And the Lord gives him the opportunity. You can go if you want to go. And Peter says, I have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Peter, the believer. Peter, the man of absolute conviction in the Lord and who he is. And then you also have this picture of Peter, the leader, right? Whenever the disciples are named in the New Testament, who's the first one on the list? It's Peter. The inner circle of the disciples, there's three, Peter, James, and John. Who's the first named? It's Peter. Whenever they're asked a question, who's usually the first answer? It's Peter. Peter is the spokesman and the leader, and we see that in Peter's life. You could think of Peter as Peter the confessor. It's another picture we have of him. This great confession that Peter declares in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, where Jesus is asking, there's loads of people who are saying who I am. They all have opinions about me and who I am. And Jesus asked the disciples, the disciples, he asked the group of them, well, who do you say I am? Guess who speaks up? Peter. Peter declares, you are the Christ. That's Peter. And you look at him, you get all these great pictures of who he is. But then you also get different pictures of Peter, don't you? You get a picture of Peter the rebuker. Because after Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, what happened? 
Immediately after that, Jesus said, you are, I am going to suffer many things. Do you know what Peter does? After saying that Jesus is the Christ, do you know what Peter does? Peter rebukes Jesus. You're not going to suffer like that. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So you have these wonderful pictures of Peter, but then you also have these pictures of Peter as a rebuker or pictures of, of Peter as, as a doubter. When Jesus is, is walking on the water towards them in the boat, remember walking on the water towards them in the boat in Matthew chapter 14. And Peter said to him, Lord, if you command me to come out onto the water, I will come. And the Lord Jesus said, come. It, sometimes I think we just read over these things in the Bible. Jesus is standing on water. And Peter's in a boat and he says, do you want me to come? And Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked onto the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Another picture of Peter. Isn't Peter the great preacher, the great man of great conviction, the great confessor? Now he is the great doubter. And also, another thing about Peter, he's a complicated guy. Peter is a great fighter, isn't he? Don't we know that about Peter? When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, what did he do? He took out the sword. And what ended up happening? He chopped one of the soldiers' ears off. Let me ask you this question. Do you think he was going for the ear? Do you think his shot was that good that he was just going for the ear? You know, I'll just teach him a lesson. I don't know, but I reckon he was going for the head. Peter the fighter. And then, of course, we know Peter for one of the things he is most famous for. Peter the denier. Three times. I don't know this man. I don't know this man. And after all of that, in these simple four verses, we have another picture of Peter, this complicated man. And the picture that we have of Peter here is Peter the hypocrite. That's who Peter is, Peter the hypocrite. And you know what this tells me about every Christian, every Christian? You know, Martin Luther, he read these verses. And he said, these verses should encourage every Christian. Am I reading the same Bible? How are these verses encouraging? He says, because all of us have sinned. None of us are perfect. All of us are complicated. There's sometimes where we have great conviction and great belief and we can preach and we can tell people about Jesus and all those. And there's other times where we have great doubt, and great sin and, and great worry. We're complicated people. And you know what often happens to us as human beings when we see complicated people? Do you know what we do? We tend to distance ourselves from complicated people. 
Because I, I, my life is messy enough. I don't want that. I don't want that complication in my life. So we distance ourselves. And here's what we tend to do with God then. We project that onto God. That if I'm complicated, if I have weeks of doubt or fear or whatever I may have, that God would distance himself from me. That's not the reality. Because no matter how complicated our lives are as Christians, Jesus will always say, come. Jesus will always have you. Jesus, though you deny him, he will never deny you. Though you fail to acknowledge him in front of people, he will never fail to acknowledge you. Though you lack in your love for him, he will never lack in his love for you. Though we are complicated, he is phenomenally consistent in all his love for all his saints, including this man, Peter. And so here we have the picture of Peter, the hypocrite. And how do we see his hypocrisy? It's in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter, he was happy as a Jew. Peter was happy to eat with the Gentiles at one point. But then when the circumcision party came, those Jews who believed that you had to have the gospel, but also circumcision and also food laws, when they came, do you know what Peter does? He starts to distance himself from these people. So one day, he's happy to sit and eat and talk with people. And then when his friends come along, what does he do? It's almost like you're, you're watching something that would happen in secondary school or primary school. You're friends with someone, you're talking to them. Then the cool gang comes along and what you do? You walk away. That's what he's doing. The cool gang have come along. So now he's like, I'm, I don't want anything to do with these people. That's hypocrisy. And often Christians, we get in trouble for hypocrisy. Because people will say, well, you Christians, you don't practice what you preach. And in some ways, us, us Christians, we need to face up to that. If that is a reality, if, if there is hypocrisy in our lives, we need to face up to that. But often people say that we are hypocrites because we don't practice what we preach. But that's not quite hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is actually deeper than that. Hypocrisy is not just pra not practicing what you preach. Hypocrisy is not practicing what you believe. It's deeper. When I'm going against what I believe, that's when I'm acting in hypocrisy. And what we have in verse 12 here is that Peter is going against exactly what he believes. What he believes is that the gospel is open for Gentiles and they're welcoming in, but he's going against what he believes. At one point, he's eating with them. At another point, he's not. And you, and you think to yourself, why is it so complicated? Why is it a big deal that he's eating with the Gentiles? What difference does that make that he's eating with the Gentiles? Well, the difference that that makes is the food laws. In the Old Testament, we have this picture in Deuteronomy and Leviticus of these food laws. Man, if you need some bedtime reading, they will put you to sleep at night. 
Leviticus chapter 11. If you need help sleeping, Leviticus chapter 11, that will do it. Don't mean to be irreverent, but, you know, some of God's word seems more useful to us than other portions of God's word. And so you read these food laws and it, and it tells us of all these um, clean animals and unclean animals in Leviticus chapter 11. So it labels some of the unclean animals, basically animals that you are not allowed to eat. If you are a practicing Jew, if you're following after the Lord Jesus, or if you're following after God, Yahweh, if you're trusting in Yahweh and following after Yahweh, you're going to keep all these food laws. What are they? Leviticus chapter 11, verses 4 to 7, labels some of them. So they were not allowed to eat camel. Kundi camel. Take that off the menu. They were not allowed to eat rock badger. Take rock badger off the menu. Weren't allowed to eat that. They were not allowed to eat hare or rabbit. Take that off the menu. I'm fine so far. Wouldn't have to worry about any of those things. But they also weren't allowed to eat pig. That's a bit tougher for some of us, isn't it? These were the food laws. Why were they told to eat certain foods and not eat certain foods? At the end of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11, verses 40, 44 to 45, the Lord God says to them, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And you are going to be holy, just as I am holy. Here's what the Lord did. He changed their menu so that even in what they ate, they would look different to the other nations. That they would be a unique and set apart people, holy unto God. So that when people looked at those people, they would say, what are they eating? They're different. They're distinct. They're holy. But then you see Jesus came. These were the food laws that they had to keep in order to separate themselves out of the nations, in order to be distinct from the nations. And then Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he completely changed all of the food laws. And so what I want you to turn to, if you keep your finger in Galatians chapter 2, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Keep your finger in Galatians 2 and turn to Mark chapter 7. See, because everything Peter is doing relates to him eating with the Gentiles, relates to these food laws that they were supposed to have kept. Mark chapter 7, and we'll go back to Galatians chapter 2. But look at Mark chapter 7. Here's what it says. And when he called the people, Jesus, called the people, Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And when he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that is going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So nothing that comes inside can make you wrong, but what comes out defiles you. Then verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart? but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. So what Jesus is doing, keep there, stay there for a second. What Jesus is doing is saying it's not about anymore 
the food laws about what goes into your stomach. That's not what defiles you. No more. We're no more about the food laws. Now what defiles you is what comes out of the heart. In verse 20, Jesus goes on to say, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So here's what Jesus is saying. You don't need to be concerned about what you eat anymore. You now need to be concerned about the heart. For from the heart, the mouth speaks. From the heart come all these evil things. And the reality is, for Peter, he knows this. He knows now that all foods are clean. Because Peter, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, was given a vision by the Lord in which all these animals came down on the sheet. On the sheet, It's a strange vision that he gets from the Lord. And basically, the Lord tells him, you can stand up, kill, and eat. You can have all of these animals, clean, unclean, none of it matters anymore, which means the gospel now can go to the Gentiles. And Peter became the first missionary to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. There was a time where you couldn't eat with the Gentiles, where you couldn't have fellowship with the Gentiles. But now, now you can eat. And so how is Peter being hypocritical in verse 12? He was eating with them. He was doing what was right now because the Lord Jesus had made all foods clean. But then when the cool kids come, he disowns them, he walks away, and he lives hypocritically. He goes against what he believes. That's the core of hypocrisy. We need to be challenged with this as God's people. To live out a life that's consistent with what we believe. Whenever we go against what we believe, we act in hypocrisy. Peter believed that the gospel was for all people. No matter who you are, no matter where you were born, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what way you talked or what you ate or what you drank, the gospel was for everybody. He believed that. And yet when they come around, he walks away. He walks away. When we were in Nairobi, Kenya, years and years ago, I told you about the time we were in Nairobi, Kenya on a missions trip. We worked with the Maasai tribe there. And they found it really, really difficult to get aid to the Maasai tribe and also to preach the gospel to the Maasai tribe. Do you know why? This is 14 years ago, so I don't know what it's like now. But do you know why? Because they couldn't get Christians to come in and share the gospel with another people that they couldn't be with. That's hypocrisy. If we ever, ever say that the gospel is only for certain people, that 
is hypocrisy. The gospel is for everybody. Everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. The gospel is exclusive in this sense. There is only one way, and it is through Jesus. It is not about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. It is not about any of those things. It is only Jesus. It is not about circumcision or food laws. It is only Jesus. It is, it is exclusive in that sense. It is only through him. But it is inclusive in this sense. It is for absolutely everybody. And that is what I would love this church to be. I would love us to be a church and a place where we were about absolutely everybody. That no matter what you look like, no matter how you behaved, you would always be welcome because the gospel is for everybody. It is hypocrisy to think otherwise. <coughs> And you know what happens when people come into this room or when people interact with us? They know. <laughs> they can smell it off us. Whether they're accepted and welcomed in, whether the gospel is for them or not. So this is a warning for Cephas. Rock, be who you are. Be about the gospel. Hypocrisy is so, so dangerous. And when we see hypocrisy, what should we do? Well, I believe in these verses, we're kind of told what to do. When we see hypocrisy in other people's lives, in other Christians' lives around us, what should we do? We should tell them. Should go up and tell brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, I heard you say that, I saw you do this. It's not consistent. It's not consistent with the way of Jesus. This is not how Jesus would have you to live. We should tell them. But then the question is, should we tell them like Paul tells them? Because the way Paul tells them is a very Paul way of telling them. Here, <laughs> the way Paul tells them, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So you get this idea. You get this idea of Paul. Like, I love some of these verses of Paul. You get this idea of Paul going up to Peter's face and Peter actually feeling his breath. I don't know if this is the way, but it kind of conceives that in the verse. To his face. I went up to his face. And said, Rock, what are you doing? So that he could feel his breath. That's almost the picture you get of the verbs that are used. He went to him to his face. And then verse 14, you say, oh, maybe, maybe it was just him alone to his face. Maybe it went alone, but verse 14 is clear. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Paul rebukes him in front of everybody. And then, just to make sure, he puts it in print for everybody throughout all generations to see. 
And so the question is, should we rebuke? And should we rebuke like that? And is that rebuke even biblical? Because the realities are in, 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 Mark, in Mark chapter 18, we're given a way to come to someone. If we see someone in sin, and to be honest, all hypocrisy is, all, all, all sin is hypocrisy really for the Christian because every time we sin, we're going against what we believe, right? If you see someone in sin, if your brother sins, Matthew 18, against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, You've gained your brother. So it seems like if someone has sinned or you see someone sinning or sinned against you, you go to them privately, you go to them individually, and you tell them. In Ireland, you know what we do? We don't go to them at all. We give out about them and we rub it under the carpet. And we're still kind of friends with them, but we never tell them. No, we, sh we should tell people. We should go to them alone. That is what it is saying in the passage. That is what Jesus told us to do. Gently, calmly, quietly, pulling someone aside and saying, look, you may not have seen this. Man, there's so much stuff I don't see. I wish you knew how many times Luana has to just pull me aside and say, Shane, like, like this, you're, you're missing it. You know, like you've, 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 it's like, like I'm like, you know, those horses in Kerry where you have, they have the blinders on, you know, I, I know it's not only in Kerry. I mean, it shows how much of a city man I am, but like, you know, the horses with the blinders on, that's, that's me sometimes. I just have blinders on. I'm just so focused. And sometimes I don't see all these things around me. So I need a wife like Luana who will come and say, look, Shane, you're missing. Take this one off and take that one off and see the bigger picture. That's so good for me. That's really good for me. Rebuke can be loving and caring because sometimes I just don't see where I'm going wrong. Question is, should you do it publicly? And in this case, I think yes, because of the seriousness of the sin. It's taking people away from the gospel. It is adding to the gospel. It is saying you have to have Jesus, but you also need to keep the food laws. No, the gospel is only about Jesus. You have to have Jesus, but you also have to add in circumcision. No, it's only about Jesus. It's all about him. We never add to the gospel. It is good and perfect and right. And so he is rebuked publicly because it is a serious sin, but he's also rebuked publicly. Why? Because he is a leader. He's a leader. And in his sin, in verse 13, we know he's influencing other people with his leadership. So his hypocrisy becomes contagious so that other people are becoming hypocritical, including Barnabas in verse 13. So it needs to be dealt with publicly on this occasion. It must be dealt publicly because it is serious sin and it is a public sin. And that's good for leaders to know. <laughs> James says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because the judgment is severe. That verse frightens me, frightens me. It doesn't stop me because I know I can preach by God's grace, but it does give me sake to pause. Lord, help me. So should you rebuke people publicly? I don't think that's what we should learn from this 
passage. But when we see hypocrisy, should we tell people? My answer is yes. Yes, because it is a loving thing and it is a caring thing and you will protect your brothers and sisters. I heard this, this story of a guy a while back in a church and he said he saw this, this, this man and this woman inappropriately inter interacting for weeks. They're both married, but they're inappropriately interacting for weeks. He said, I saw it, but I thought to myself, ah, no, it's probably nothing. I'm just making it up. Turned out they ended up committing adultery. Now, I'm not blaming the guy for not saying anything. But isn't it dangerous when you see something not to say something? When you see so someone, a believer who loves the Lord Jesus, speaking in a way they shouldn't, tell them. Quietly, gently come alongside them because they might have their blinders on. They might need someone to say, hey, you're going out of step with the gospel here. Tell them. We need to encourage one another in the gospel. You know, I appreciate when Brendan was reading Acts chapter 2 on the, on the day away. Acts chapter 2, and he was talking about the early church, how they devoted themselves to the reading of the word, to teaching, to breaking of bread, to fellowship. They devoted themselves to one another. What do you think we should do as believers if we see some people in our body not devoting themselves to fellowship and to teaching and to gathering together? What should we do? We should tell them. You know, sometimes some of us get discouraged. And when we get discouraged, we feel, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't go there because, because I'm, I'm sinning. So I shouldn't go there. The reality is, you know, Satan would tell us that lie. Don't go there and sing this the, the, that morning because, because you've been sinning all this week. So hypocrisy would say you shouldn't sin. No. Hypocrisy is going against what we believe. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I believe that I should sing to him. So then it's authenticity to come in in the Sunday morning and sing his praises. And so if there is a brother and sister that you notice that's discouraged, that's breaking out of fellowship, encourage them. And invite them back in and tell them that you miss them because they are missing out. This is Peter's reality. Peter, here on this occasion, is living a life of hypocrisy. But what I love about Peter's story is that every story you hear in the Bible about Peter, is he's a preacher or a great conviction or doubter or denier or hypocrite, every story is not his final story, is it? You know, Jesus said to him in, in John 21, he, he told him, you know, you will have your arms stretched out. And in that way, Jesus was telling him how he was going to die. And in 1 Clement, 
And in the history of Eusebius, we are told that Peter did die with his arms stretched out, crucified upside down. Why? Because he followed the Lord Jesus right to the very end. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith, even though his story was an absolute mess. You know what, brothers and sisters, there's hope for you and me. We come in this morning and we're complicated, right? Do you doubt? Do you have anger and, and, and sin in your life this week? Do you have all those things? There's hope for you. We are encouraged to fight the good fight, run the race, and keep the faith. Let's pray. Lord, our lives, they are very complicated, much like this man, Peter. And Lord, we thank you for this rebuke that we see in these verses, Paul's rebuke of Peter, because it reminds us to be a people who would not be hypocritical, but that we would be authentic. And Lord, we will fail and we will mess up, and yet, Lord, we know that that picture doesn't need to be the final picture of us. Lord, help us to run the race. Help us to fight the fight. Help us to keep the faith. Help us, Lord, be a community in which we come alongside one another and care for one another enough to question, to ask, to rebuke in some ways. Help us, Lord, be that kind of people. Help us to pick one another up when we're falling in the race and spur one another on to finish well. In your name, amen. amen.